Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Queen's Hall and to this special Edinburgh International Book Festival event in association with Edinburgh UNESCO City of Literature. My name is Catherine Lockerbie. I'm the director of the book festival. And as very many of you know, it's a pretty big book festival. We've just had over 600 authors in Charlotte Square Gardens in August. But we wanted very much to extend things a little and to hand-pick a few particularly special guests to bring to you in other seasons of the year as well and when the nights really start fair drawing in. So we are overjoyed uh, to bring Martin Amis to you tonight. Uh, on Friday here we'll have William Boyd on Sunday, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, next Tuesday Margaret Atwood. We wanted to do these events partly because Edinburgh is the world's first city of literature, uh, a unique permanent title conferred on the city by UNESCO two years ago this month in fact, and in recognition and celebration of the deep role that words, ideas, literature have played in the formation of this city and its identity, not just its formation in the past, but its formation in the future as well. Tonight's event will last around about an hour. There will be an opportunity to ask questions, of course. There'll be a book signing afterwards in the bar where you'll have the chance to buy what I personally think is one of the finest books Martin Amos has ever written. The chair for tonight's event is Alan Taylor, associate editor of the Sunday Herald newspaper and a great champion of good literature. Please now welcome him and Martin Amos. Well, uh, we can't see you, but uh, we assume you can see us, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Although thinking of calling you ladies and gentlemen and thinking about Martin's new book, your wonderful book, House of Meetings. Perhaps I should call you Bitches and Boots. Um, it's set in uh, a slave labor camp largely in post-war uh, Russia, and uh, you're going to get a taster of it in a minute. But I just briefly want to eulogize, I think, Martin Amos, uh, one of the great writers of our age, um, it came as something of a shock to me when I did a bit of Google-type research and discovered, as I dare say it was a shock to you, Martin, that you're 57. Um, and I feel that all my adult life I've been tracking slightly behind you. Um, like Gore Vidal, uh, with regard to Anthony Burgess, although I don't put myself in the same league as this, I will always be slightly younger than you. Um, but it's a career that began with the Rachel Papers. Um, it has progressed through uh, about nine or ten novels, a couple of collections of short stories, volumes of essays, and a wonderful autobiographical memoir uh, experience. Um, and it adds up to a body of work that I think is incomparable in British literature uh, contemporaneously. And so it's a wonderful uh, thing that Martin's going to be here tonight and to read from House of Meetings, and after which I'll quiz him a bit, but we'll open it up as early as we can to the floor so you can ask any questions you feel like of a personal nature. And um, 
there will be a book signing, as Catherine said afterwards. But please, for the moment, welcome Martin Amos. Thanks very much for coming. And I can't quite see you, but I'm delighted that you're here. Um, I spent the afternoon luxuriating in wallowing in the quality of life here in Edinburgh. Um, I'd read this week that Edinburgh is now number one in quality of life in the British Isles. So I, I, spent my, I walked out and bought some uh, cigarettes and then lay in the bath desperately wanting a cigarette, um, <laughs> unable to do so, but um, exulting in the quality of life here. In <laughs> and it also, also it was established that um, you know, while it's become a leading European city, it hasn't lost any of its character. The, uh, my taxi driver said he, he, di he didn't akin the name of his fare, and he went in and said, they, they, they didn't akin neither, he said. Um, reminding me of a, not a bad joke told to me by my friend Christopher Hitchens. Um, Jock, um, the atheist Jock, after a very uh, short and hedonistic life of drinking and smoking and chasing girls and all the rest of it uh, dies and to his horror goes to hell and uh, as he's lying staked out on the floor of the dungeon getting scorched and peed on he, said, he just cries out he said Lord I, I didn't a ken <laughs> and a voice booms back well you ken knew <laughs> Uh, this is the, the chapter called The War Between the Brutes and the Bitches. I'll read about six, seven pages, and then we'll, we'll chat. My, brother, my younger brother, Lev, came to Norlag in February 1948. I was already there at the height of the war between the brutes and the bitches. He came at night. By the way, this, this whole book is addressed to the 85-year-old narrator's 24-year-old black American stepdaughter. He, he defected in 1983 and um, married his housekeeper and helped raise this young girl called Venus. And um, it's not just Hollywood producers who like a bit of redemption in their artifacts. Um, this is a very grim book in lots of ways, but the fact that he has played a hand in rearing this girl um, and equipping her beautifully for life is, is gives, gives something of a redempt, redemptive aspect to his life. So his brother comes to camp. He came at night. I recognized him instantly in a crowd and at a distance because a sibling, Venus, far more tellingly than a child, displaces a fixed amount of air. A child grows while its parents remain static in space. With brothers, it is always the same difference. I was having a smoke with Semyon and John Reed on the roof of the cement works, and I saw Lev filing into the disinfection block, which stood foolishly exposed by its great battery of encaged light bulbs. Forty minutes later, he filed into the yard. He was naked but for the cat suit of thick white ointment they hosed you down with for the purgation of small vermin. The caustic fire it generated on the surface of the skin 
did nothing to ease the galvanic shivering caused by 30 degrees of frost. He stumbled, he was night blind, and went down on all fours, and the cold really took him. He looked like a hairless dog trying to shake itself dry. Then he got to his feet and stood there holding something in his cupped hands, something precious. I kept back. This was the year when the tutelary powers lost their hold on the monopoly of violence. It was a time of spasm, savagery, with brute going at bitch and bitch going at brute. The factions had at their disposal a tool shop each, and this set the tone of their encounters, warm work with the spanner and the pliers, the handspike and the crowbar, vicings, awlings, lathings, manic jackhammerings, atrocious chiselings. Even as Lev jogged across the yard to the infirmary, there came through the mist the ear-hurting screams from the entrance to the toy factory, where two brutes, we later learned, were being castrated by a gang of bitches armed with whipsaws in retaliation for a blinding earlier that day. <coughs> the war between the brutes and the bitches was a civil war, because the brutes and the bitches were alike irkers. A social substratum of hereditary criminals, the irkers had been in existence for centuries, but invisibly. They were fugitive in both senses, on the run and quick to disappear. Outside in the land of freedom, you would glimpse them rarely and with callow wonder, as a child glimpses the half-hidden figures in the wings of a circus or a fairground a world of Siamese twins and mermen and bearded ladies, of monstrous tattoos and scarifications, a world of coded chaos. You could hear them, too, sometimes. In a Moscow backstreet, it could stop you dead, the Urka whistle. Scandalously shrill and involving, you felt sure, indecent use of the tongue. On the outside, the Urkas were a spectral underclass in the camps, of course, they formed a conspicuous and vociferous elite, but now they were at war. This was how power was distributed on, in our animal farm. At the top were the pigs, the janitoriate of administrators and guards. Next came the urkas, designated as socially friendly elements. They had the status of trustees who, moreover, did no work. The American sub-editor, by the way, changed trustees to trustees. And then after, no doubt, a pensive few minutes, changed it back again. <laughs> um, beneath the Urkas were the snakes, the informers, the one in tens. And beneath the snakes were the leeches, bourgeois fraudster, fraudsters, counterfeiters, and embezzlers and the like. Close to the bottom of the pyramid came the fascists, the counters, the 58ers, the enemies of the people, the politicals. Then you got the locusts, the juveniles, the little calibans, by-blows of revolution, displacement, and terror. They were the feral orphans of the Soviet experiment. Without their nonsensical laws and protocols, the Urkas would have been just like the locusts, only bigger. The locusts had no norms at all. Finally, right down there in the dust were the shit-eaters, the goners, the wicks. They couldn't work anymore, and they could no longer bear the pains of hunger, 
so they feebly brawled over the slops and the garbage. Like my brother, I was a, quote, socially hostile element, a political, a fascist. Needless to say, I was not a fascist. I was a communist. There were also animals, real animals, in our animal farm, dogs. The Urka civil war was a consequence of Moscow's attempt to undermine Urka power and Urka idleness. Its policy was to promote the Urkas still further, to give them, in exchange for certain duties, pay and privileges close to those of the janitoriate. The bitches were the Urkas who wanted to stop being Urkas and start being pigs. The brutes were the Urkas who wanted to go on being Urkas. It looked good for us at first when the war broke out. Suddenly the Urkas had something else to do with their inexhaustible free time, something other than torturing the fascists, their premier activity. But now the war between the brutes and the bitches was getting out of control. Having lost their monopoly of violence, the pigs applied yet more violence. There was a wildness and randomness in the air that was beginning to feel almost abstract. Venus. Remember how disappointed you were by the crocodiles in the reptile house at the zoo because, as you said, the, the lizards never moved. Imagine that hibernatory quiet, that noisome stasis. Then comes a whiplash, a convulsion of fantastic instantaneity, and after half a second, one of the crocodiles is over in the corner, rigid and half dead with shock, and missing its upper jaw. That was the wall between the brutes and the bitches. Now, when I talk here and elsewhere of Moscow and its so-called policies, I do it with the assurance of informed hindsight. But at the time, we had no idea what was going on. We never had any idea what was going on. My brother's first day, he would spend most of it with the medics and the work assigners, was also the monthly day of rest. I came up behind him in the yard. He was sitting on a low stone wall where the well used to be, his knees pressed together, his shoulders sloped forward. He was cherishing his fractured spectacles and trying to believe his eyes. And what did he see? The thing that was hardest to grasp was the scale, the inordinate amount of space needed to contain it. In his line of sight were 5,000 men, 10 times that number lay to the sides, beyond, behind. When you got used to that, you had to come to terms with the evident fact that you were living in something like an army base where the conscripts had been drawn from a direly indigent madhouse or a direly indigent hospice. In your nose and mouth was the humid breath of the camp, of Norlag, and more distantly, the fresh cement of the brand new Arctic city, the monumental denture of Predpozilov. And finally, you had to absorb and assent to the ceaseless agitation, the mad dance of the stick insects, the nervous fury of the zona. I said, don't turn round, Dimitriko. Never again would I call him that. It was the not, not the time for diminutives. It never was the time. A camp administrator who allowed two family members to set eyes on each other, let alone meet and talk, let alone cohabit for almost 10 years, 
would be punished for criminal leniency. On the other hand, we would not need to be masters of deception, I didn't think, to avoid exposure. We were half-brothers with different surnames, and we were radically unalike. To be brief, my father, Valerie, was a Cossack, duly de-Cossackized in 1920 when I was one. Lev's father, Dmitri, was a well-to-do peasant, or Kulak, duly de-Kulakized in 1932 when Lev was three. The father's genes predominated. I was six foot two with thick black hair and orderly features, whereas Lev it seems that I'd better describe him now, your step-uncle, to prepare the ground for the thunderclap that is barely a page away. There was something yokelish, indeed almost troglodytic, in the asymmetries of his face, the features thrown together inattentively as if in the dark. Even his ears seemed to belong to two completely different people. Say whatever else you like about it, but my nose was unquestionably a nose while Lev's was a mere protuberance. And when you looked at him side on, you thought, is that his chin or is Adam's apple? He was also, as a kid, short, meager, and sickly, a stuttering bedwetter in inch-thick glasses. All he had was his smile. In the mess of his face lived the teeth of a beautiful woman and his rich blue eyes, the eyes of an intelligent definitely an intelligent. I said, don't turn around, and when you do, show no pleasure in seeing your older brother. He stood up, he walked away, then circled back into range. For a moment I found his faintly hooded, self-caressing expression impossible to read. It seemed, in the circumstances, simply alien. After the jail and the interrogation, after the transport, many new arrivals were already mad, and I feared my brother was already mad. Guess what happened to me, he said. I said patiently, you got arrested. No, well, yes, but no, I got married. Congratulations, I said. So you finally knocked up little Ada, or was it little Olga? He didn't answer. Look at the eyes now, the eyes of an old believer. Part of his mind was away somewhere, dancing with itself. This was clearly a great coup of love he had brought off, a great grand slam of love. Has it ever happened to you, Venus? The color of the day suddenly changes to shadow, and you know you're going to remember that moment for the rest of your life. Registering an impressive contraction of the heart, I said, not Zoya. He nodded. Zoya, he said. You, you little cunt, I said, and I wheeled away from him into the yard. After a time, as I staggered along, buckling and straightening, shaking my head, scratching my hair, I felt him settling into step beside me. I'm sorry, he said. Please don't hate me. I'm so sorry. I turned, and with an older brother's grooved cruelty, spinning it out for at least three syllables. I said, you? We sucked up breath and looked out into the sector and saw what? In the space of three minutes, we saw a bitch sprinting flat out after a brute with a bloody mattock in his hand, 
a pig methodically clubbing a fascist to the ground, a workshy snake slicing off the remaining fingers of his left hand, a team of locusts twirling an old shit-eater into the compost heap, and finally a leech who, with his teeth sticking out from his gums at right angles, scurvy, was nonetheless making a serious attempt to eat his shoe. I whispered it. Lev and Zoya got married. If I can survive that, then I'll never die. No, brother, you'll never die. Sighing heroically, I added in a clear voice, and you can survive this, and now you'll have to. Thanks. I think Martin has really got a flavour off there. Um, this is a reasonably dark book, um, but but it's also described, um, interestingly, as often books are, as a love story. Except um, this is a triangular love story, because the narrator, who is a horrid person in many respects, does seem to have the capacity of love. Well, no, he's, he's um, severely damaged in that particular. There's a... And that, the whole book can be summed up in, in one Urca tattoo, a tattoo much favoured by the Urcas, um, who would emblazon themselves with masturbating monkeys and um, all sorts of weird and very thick thickly painted like a sort of tarot card all over them. But um, the, uh, the most popular verbal or you know, proverbial Urca tattoo was something on the arm that said, you may live, but you won't love. In other words, you may survive this, but, but when you do, you won't be able to love. And um, mm -hmm. that's more or less the rubric of the book that um, you know it's often said that the, the memoirs of survivors of the Gulag, Solzhenitsyn, Yevgeny Ginsberg, et al um, were very unrepresentative of the prison population because they uh, were intellectuals mm. there's, there's nothing by uh, urkas or leeches or pigs or locusts but they were deeply unrepresentative, I think, in another way, in that they were huge, huge-souled uh, people, enormous force of life. And I think they probably, they lived and they also loved. But I, I just had a gathering intuition that for most people who were there, without that enormous integrity, and uh, that this would be what it would attack, is your capacity to love. So the narrator... Is, is damaged uh, in this capacity even before he goes to camp. Because it, he's been through the war as a, as a Russian soldier and, and he's, been a, he's, a, he's been a killer as people are in wars but he's, he's been a serial rapist as well in, in the war. Yeah, he, in the last in the first months of 1945 as he admits to his stepdaughter he, uh, he raped his way across what would soon be East Germany um, and he also says that he, he lost his virginity to a Silesian 
housewife after after a 15 minute chase. Yeah. Um, not not the most auspicious of awakenings in the erotic department. Um, <laughs> so he, he's already peculiar um, erotically, or uh, yeah. when he goes to camp. Lev, the little one, the younger one, goes to great lengths and, and is very brave in camp in that he, he won't be violent. He, he, violence is like currency in the camp. It's like tobacco or bread. It's, just, it's like language in the camp. But Lev, who takes a lot of punishment himself, won't, won't join in. Um, and it's, he's doing this because he knows that what's happening to them in the camp is going to it's not going to not matter. It's going to carry forward into mm. their lives. Well, and even he can't escape it. Well, you, you have another phrase which I think could be used as a rubric uh, for the book. I think it's in Lev's letter um, towards the end of the book, which is, nobody gets over anything. Is that, is that where it, it comes? in his letter, his letter to, yes. to his daughter. daughter. Yeah. As she says to him, uh, why you, she's... The point about Venus, the, the recipient of this long letter, is that she, the narrator has suffered from uh, the results of ideology. And he, he teasingly says to his 24-year-old black American stepdaughter that she has an ideology too. And um, she has her nostrums within this ideology. And, he's, and he, towards the end, he fumes at her that she once said to him, why didn't you? Why don't you seek closure? And he said, he said closure is a greasy little word that um, it, that describes a non-existent condition. And she also uses the sentence length nostrum. Um, Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And he says, not so. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker and kills you later on. <laughs> and he says, you know. It's, be clear about this, no one ever gets over anything. And I think, you know, looking around, this does seem to be pretty much <laughs> the <laughs> on, case. On goes. Yeah. I mean, would you uh, like, I don't think you would give away anything if you explained the title of the book. Mm. No, that's why I, that was um, what made me write it, was this account in Anne Applebaum's book about the Gulag, history of the Gulag, that they did incredibly have conjugal visits in the in the gulag, sort of like a remnant of, you know, Leninist do-goodism that that was still staggering on deep into the Stalinist hell. Um, so these intrepid women would would go on journeys that some, sometimes lasted for two or three months on freezing. Uh, Trains and bounced around on trucks and hitching and and would get there. Sometimes they'd be sent on their way with a taunt. Sometimes you'd sit with your husband for half an hour with a guard sitting in the, between you, picking his teeth. Um, but sometimes you did get a night in the house of meetings, uh, which was the, their name for the place of the conjugal visit. And the, men, and the men amazingly um, went on, vied and, and worked to get this privilege, although the results of these meetings were almost invariably tragic for you know, various 
reasons. I mean, sometimes they'd be told by their wives that the marriage was over. Solzhenitsyn describes one such encounter, and that the the children were now their children were now wards of the state. Your wife and all your other family and all her family would have been persecuted because if you'd been arrested as a political because you were a member of the family of a member of a enemy of the people and that was a, in itself a crime. So you'd be you'd find out all this great ramifying suffering that that your arrest for no crime, not even a pseudo crime, your arrest by quota to feed the slave system had caused. Um, and you know that that's your basic. And on top of that, uh, after a few years in the gulag, the male hormones would not be being reproduced within you, uh, and you would be severely anemic. So you'd have to stride off to the house of meetings, um, and almost the best you could hope for was it would be a pyrotechnic display of impotence. Uh, you know. Night, a 24-hour display, a detailed display of impotence. And then when the men came staggering out at the other end of it, uh, and they would often come close to walking to the wire, which was the easiest means of suicide in the camp. You walk to the wire and you get shot. Uh, and the, the you know, further sort of touching human thing was that all the other men would would be very careful with you and would respect in silence your condition and would help you with your work and help you with your food. Um, great respect for men who are suffering in this way. And that was really what mm. you know, I thought that you could write a novel about that. Well, one of the things you say about these meetings is that when the men got to the, the place, there was a spread put on for them, you know, a lot of food they'd never seen before, vodka, etc. And then they'd gorge themselves and be sick or not be able to hold it down. And then even if they managed to do anything, they'd fall asleep. So there was the, the, the desperation for food and sleep was above all prioritized before sex. Well, well yes, and um, you know, you, in the camp, the food and the vodka and the cigarettes rolled out of Pravda and the candles and the um, big hunk of bread and the, the bit of fish that was only slightly green at the edges. Um, that would all be the efforts of your fellow prisoners. Great deal of work and sacrifice gone into that. But it was slightly self-defeating. And this one, one has just imagined this. Um, there are, there's very little literature on it. But, um, you know, for the first time in seven or eight years, you got food in front of you, mm. but you you decided to do something else, mm. which is make love to your wife. With all that food um, in front of you, yeah, and it wouldn't happen in Scotland, and, Martin. I tell you that. No, now. I mean it's hard enough even <laughs> here in Edinburgh. To, yeah, um, you wouldn't be able to smoke anyway. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm, I'm interested why, why you got. I mean, I you can see the subject, which is. A, a, a fantastic subject, and you wrote Cobra the Dread about Stalinism. Is this where this subject arises from? I mean, at the end of the book, you acknowledge several books, including the Anne Applebaum book, Solzhenitsyn, and um, a memoir of a survivor who I think you got to know before he, he shortly died. I mean, where, where was the, the, the inspiration for the book? 
Well, it, it was because um, you didn't, you know, cope with the dread. You took a, a, a bit of a. I certainly did. Rough time on, yeah. <laughs> well, cope with the dread was um, amateur historiography, and um, you know, if you're a novelist, don't do anything like that because because uh, the territoriality of of the historians is ferocious, um, and it's naturally it's they who get sent the book to review. To, you know, to see, what, would, yeah. see how good your Russian is and all that. Um, but, but then what happened was it, it went, uh, you take in a certain amount of information on any subject and you hope that it's going to sink down into your unconscious and a couple of years later you'll have more to say mm. and less obvious things to say. Uh, but then um, it's, it sounds like a, you know, a footling challenge, but believe me, it wasn't. I had to write about penal servitude above the Arctic Circle while I was living in Uruguay in a, in a rather attractive house with <laughs> my uh, beautiful wife and my beautiful daughters in the in completely stressless country of Uruguay, you know, where, um, apart from smoking, which they've recently got tough on, not, nothing is illegal, um, except abortion anomalously. But um, Uruguay is the is they sometimes call it the Switzerland of South America, and that's an insult to it because it isn't neutralist. Um, it, it had a, it's had a bloody history, like all the countries on that continent. By the way, um, the big difference between North America and South America is this: in North America, the colonists raped and then murdered the natives. In South America, they raped them and then married them, which is a distinct improvement in my view. Um, so it's Uruguay, not so much as Brazil, but every, every shade of color in, in the, you know, like it's like a carpet sample, you know, or a wallpaper sample. It goes on for pages and pages and pages. So the beautiful variety and for some reason, Uruguay is sane in a, in a continent which, apart from Chile, is uh, mm. swarming with murderous nutters. So, and we could maybe have the lights up in a minute and, and you can ask some questions now, but I'll, I'll ask one as the lights go up. But, um, I mean, there you are in this South American idyll having to imagine this Eastern European Asian nightmare. I mean, some of the descriptions in the book are absolutely almost unbearable to read. The book is incredibly moving um, as we move towards the denouement, which we can't give away. And you know that, that, that's interesting in itself that you want to have a denouement, a surprise at the end. Is that essential? And, and continually, I read somewhere recently this is a, a, a spare book by Martin Amos, and I thought, well. It may be spare by Martin's standards, but it doesn't seem to me to be spare. It's full of great sort of arresting phrases. You know, you have a guy called a cadaver millionaire. Mm. You know, that, I mean, that, that's a, and you, you describe it as a tale of gutturals and whistling sibilance. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that, that was the, the struggle, though, was to, to earn the right to, to, to explore all this from such a com comfortable place. And what you can't do is, 
you know, check in for 10 years of penal servitude. Why not? Uh, well, it's, they've, they've abolished it now. Solzhenitsyn did it, yeah? Yeah. Um, so all you can do is the suffering of the study, which every writer knows what that is. It's, um, it's a sort of terrible disaffection, and you, you go to write the next scene, it's completely dead, and you feel you're having to... It's as if your subconscious is switched off and that you're having to do it all from first principles. So I did... Ten months of that, and then I was fine. You know, then I was ready. So uh, now you're. If you could have the lights up, so I can see. Like, can I see here? It's quite dark out there. It's still. Maybe is that? Ah, that's better. Is Equalizes, that better? Yes. Can Can somebody raise a hand, and I can see where you are? No. There's There's someone here in the front row, and I can see somebody out there now. Yeah. It's a bit like trying to rescue people who've been shipwrecked. There's, there's someone here right at the front row, desperate, yeah. No, see, there's a microphone coming, don't worry, it's coming. And, you know, you don't have to put up flares or anything. Uh, time, time's arrow, why did you choose that chronology? And was it specific to that book or, or was that something you might have done in some other book or some other topic? No, it's a good question. Ask about Time's Arrow, the novel I wrote about the Holocaust where um, the arrow of time is turned around and it begins with the narrator or the protagonist as, as an old man and moves until he's a child. And if you turn around the arrow of time, you funnily enough turn around the arrow of morality so that every act of destruction is an act of healing. And so the innocent narrator, who is, as it might be, the soul of this old man, um, writes about the Holocaust as if it's not a, an act of genocide, but an act of genogenesis, the creation of a people. And that means that all the emotional work has to be done as it, at one removed by the reader, not by the writer. And that was my only way into it. And I... I might have written a short story backwards in time, and plenty of people have written backwards in time stuff. But um, I, I just thought it, it answered to the, to the Holocaust because it's a way of saying that this, the, the Holocaust would have been what they said it was, which was a healing act for Germany, um, if and only if time moved the other way. That's how profound the offense was. I mean, I, actually, I wouldn't have minded writing this story backwards in time either, because... Um, you get a name for that, though. <laughs> um, because <coughs> it was not very difficult morally writing about the Holocaust for me, because I wrote about a perpetrator, and that is, uh, as an Aryan, that is my ethnic link with the Holocaust. Not so clear now, because I have a Jewish wife and two Jewish daughters. But um, that was a way into the Holocaust that you know, got me past that. The difficulty here was I was writing about a victim. And when you do that, the question you're always hearing is, in your ear is, by what right? Um, and it's, it's a great presumption. And that's why I had to do that 10 months of feeling like shit. And then I, I earned it. I know there's someone over here, but there's someone right at the... T I want to ask somebody right at the top of the balcony, just for the hell of it. Hi, Martin. Hi. It's God. Um, I was wondering... Um, <laughs> he I, can I'm, knew. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the same age as you were when you wrote Success, which I'm rereading again 
before I came here, so I remembered what you know I had to say. Um, I was wondering, as you get older, do you think? Um, I don't know. Do you have as much um, talent? To use one of your words, um, does it get easier or does it get more difficult? Um, <coughs> well, I, I'm going to. The, the next novel is the one I'm going to really write about age in. Um, but I can give you a preview and say that, uh, believe me, age is, uh, is like a low budget uh, and very irresponsible horror film. Uh, <laughs> A video nasty where they're saving the worst for last. <laughs> I've, been, I've been reading just the last couple of weeks about this fascinating new syndrome that people have, which is called perceived ugly syndrome, or uh, what's it, dysmorphic, you know, where people look in the mirror and they're not seeing what they really look like, they're seeing a sort of horrible travesty. As you get older, that's what you hope you've got. Um, you say, no, that's all right, you just got perceived ugly syndrome. Um, uh, but your, your talent doesn't it does go and your thoughts do get ordinary except in very exceptional cases your thoughts V.S. Pritchett he was about he was 90 when he told me this but he said um, and he, he had lots of good rationalizations for why he wasn't writing anymore. And he said, he said, but it's not really that, it's just age. He said, your thoughts used to be exciting. They used to be, they used to be rebellious and sort of radical and uh, almost difficult to control. And then they, they get sort of very sort of harumph, harumphing, you know, sort of settled. But I think, uh, you know, uh, now for me, it's, it's not a bad time for writing because uh, writing is a much more physical process than, than people realize and you get much more attuned to that you know, 25 years ago, if I'd come up against a difficulty in a story I would have just you know, thrown my head against it, I would have gone at it for days and days and days and then eventually would probably have you know, staggered past it, covered in blood and got through it now I'm much more economical and much more relaxing. You come up against those moments, those moments, those difficulties, those brick walls, and you. And in fact, you, your feet do it for you. They walk away from the desk, and you go over to the sofa or the, the easy chair, and you pick up a book. And it's a, it's a routine now. And then it may not happen that day, but maybe the next day, you're reading, and then suddenly your feet lift you up. And you, you think, I'll just go by my desk there. And then suddenly you sit down and you're ready and you, it's been done. And the unconscious has, has worked it out. And without all this sort of terrible, you know, 500 cigarettes and banging your head on the desk, I don't do that anymore. I wait for my body to solve it. Do you ever look back, um, Martin, I mean, at, at your, I don't know, 25-year-old self uh, produced the Rachel papers and then look forward at the work you've produced and, and, and say that that's what I wanted to produce. Um, it, it was predictable or... Um, uh, it actually struck me just yesterday um, 
driving my son to university. I, and I, I, I never look at earlier work now. I used to, the idea of curling up with me for five hours <laughs> with a bottle of wine and a joint was the best possible evening. But I, I don't do it at all anymore. Um, it's because it's, you can't, the, the, the past is you know, gone and the future is actually shrinking before you. So you always want to go forward and even reading proofs is, is a drag. But, um, but I, I realized, I was just thinking odd thoughts in the car and I, I realized that the last sentence of the Rachel Papers is, I refill my pen. And I thought, I thought that was pretty butch. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Showing that, you know, you were there for the long haul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a gentleman up there, or a lady, I can't tell which sex. So, gentlemen. So. Uh, yeah, hi, Mr. Amos. Uh, I was just, just hearing you speak, kind of evokes, you know, in my mind thoughts about, especially when we think about Times Arrow, Foucault and the you know, history of the penal system and how he extends it to uh, basically create this idea of, you know, the whole of society being enslaved by the mechanisms of control and power. I was wondering, thinking about your, your article you wrote on the flight of your, 90, of your 1993, and you said, what remains of us is love. I was wondering, when you think about the, the compassion, I suppose the, the plane went to the Twin Towers, but the ultimate act of compassion, a love of God, and, and, the, and the people who stormed the cockpit, a love of humanity. Do you think what remains of us is love? And the only way of such an oppressive, you know, uh, uh, oppressive society is the vehicle of love. It's the, it's the only way of escape. Well, I think the danger, there's an inherent danger in the total system. Um, whether it's an ideology or a religion, um, any ideology, even the one we clunkingly call PC, um, or Westernism, or levelism, um, or multicultural relativism, um, has an element of violence in it for this reason, that all ideologies, all belief systems um, involve illusion. <laughs> they must do because there is, in fact, no total belief system. Uh, no system answers all questions. But that means that when asked to defend it or when, you're, when an ideologue is affronted, immediately violence is present because you can't defend it with mind alone because it involves illusion. In the case of Westernism, it's more like polite, a series of polite fictions rather than illusion. But there is, you'd be denying your senses while adhering to this ideology. Your senses have been telling you the reverse is true several times a day, but you've suppressed that because of the attractiveness of the ideology. So when you're affronted, the fists will tighten. It will be endocrinological. It will be a glandular response and not an intellectual one. And that, that is why your ideology is so quick to reach for violence to defend itself. There's a lady over here and there's a lady beyond that. So. Just keep going. So this lady is a man. Oh, God. Uh, I, well, I do that all the time. The trouble that's got me into in the past. 
I was reading in the metro today that North Korea are planning on launching a, a nuclear-tested missile. And uh, I just remember reading Einstein's Monsters back in the day. And you talked about this sickening dread you had of nuclear arms. I was just wondering what are your opinions well, on Iran I, and North I, Korea? I thought this morning, I thought, it's back. I was reading Foreign Affairs and mm. it was about that chunky American publication and there were several pieces about proliferation about what it would be like um, several pieces about <coughs> not letting Iran get a nuclear weapon but, and several pieces saying well, well what if it did and then what if most of the Middle East became nuclear armed and the great morass of possibilities that opens up from that uh, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has something in common with Ronald Reagan. I'm not saying he has many things in common with Ronald Reagan. Mahmoud is not married to Starlet. Um, he doesn't use Grecian 2000 on his hair. Uh, Reagan, as a young politician, did not involve himself in the murder of rival politicians. Um, all sorts of compelling differences, but they do have one thing in common. And they both occupy that stormlit plane where nuclear weapons meets end time theology. Um, and it's, again, it's the differences now then that strike you because uh, Mahmoud is not surrounded by cadres of, of rationalists. Um, uh, you know, many a neocon, no doubt, but not surrounded by religious nutters. And um, they're giving, nor did Reagan spend money, public money, to prepare boulevards to welcome the return of Christ. Now, Mahmoud expects the return of Christ, but Christ, in this, his case, is only a, a mere member of the entourage of a much grander personage called the hidden imam. And it's very similar, this Shia Islam and Christianity on this point, that Christ or the hidden imam will return there will will return after a period of great conflagration there will then be a rule of peace and justice after a last fight with the enemies of the antichrist and and then the day of judgment etc etc um, and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is giving this three years he said before this happens and when the hidden imam re returns Shia Islam has won that's the, the completely clinching event for Shia Islam. So, you know, there should be some sort of rule that theocracies should not be allowed nuclear weapons. But this is just one aspect of... of um, it was in 1991, I said to my sons, I said, I'm so glad that, you know, I lived... The Russians tested their first nuclear weapon four days after I was born. So I had those nice four days. I could take it easy. You know, there was no deterrence, no mutual assured destruction in place. You know, I had a really great week, long weekend. Then the Russians tested, and all my conscious life, there had been this arrangement uh, in place. And then when it ended, I said to my boys, "I'm so glad you're not going to live under that arrangement because I think it was profoundly." 
weakening, again attacking the, the sort of erotic health of everyone because it's very difficult to love when you're tensing yourself for impact. Um, but now, I, I mean, obviously things looked a little less rosy after 2001, but today I just thought it's, it's back in a new form. It's, it's going to be back and worse because we're not dealing with an atheist, rationalist um, adversary, but with you know, maybe a dozen or 20 very neurotic states. Uh, I get sure and sure that states are like people and people are like states, and I'm sure everyone here knows one or two uh, peace-loving theocracies, one or two uh, fascist tyrannies, and one or two failed states. Um, but countries are like people too, and they're, they're not like nice people. They're like very touchy people. They're obsessed with face and power and dignity and um, horrified of the slightest humiliation and reverse and so we're going to have all these touchy actors uh, with their heads full of religious nonsense. Um, and and you know, the only way forward, I think, is that the West has got, has got to head towards a zero option itself and, and declare the Middle East a nuclear-free zone and put pressure on Israel. But we can't do it. Bush can't do this while he's making new kinds of nuclear weapons. It, it's a non-starter, philosophically and morally. It's apartheid. So we've got to scale down and telling them not to start. Um, over here, and there's one person over here, I'm afraid this person here first. I, I'm, I'm not going to be gender-specific from now on. Hi. Uh, I wonder if we could sort of turn to a moment of uh, a note of hope now. Um, I wonder if you could talk, Mr. Amos, a little about Janusz Bardak. I was in Iowa City in 2003, so a year after his death, and I met a lot of people who knew him and knew him quite well. Uh, I met Kathleen Gleason as well, who, as you know, wrote the book. I noticed that Janusz Bardak uh, appears in a kind of cameo in uh, the House of Meetings. Um, and uh, uh, he seems to have been a man who touched everybody who knew him. He was a really remarkable individual. I wonder if you could talk a little about Janusz Bardak and also, if it's okay, a little about the correspondence you had with him before he died. Yes, um, Janusz Bardak wrote one of the classic memoirs of the camp called um, Man is Wolf to Man. And um, wrote a sub subsequent book called Surviving Freedom. And his, his, he was a Pole um, who got dragged into the Gulag. And he, he formed an extraordinary strategy for surviving, which is that he pretended he was a doctor. Uh, and it's as if the Gulag and Soviet life and Russian life generally forces everyone into the most awful possible corner. So there he was pretending to be that he'd studied medicine for three years, and in fact he'd studied it for perhaps a year. Um, and he was beginning to do operations, uh, and he didn't know how to do them. Hmm. And these pages in his book are, are absolutely hair-raising because he's a he, you know, genuinely compassionate man, constantly moved by the suffering around him. 
um, and reading textbooks all night to find out how to do these operations. But, but what, an, what, an, what a position to be in, what an imposture. Um, and the, he then went on to be, to be a world-famous reconstructive surgeon. And he died in, in Iowa City, I think, um, three years ago. But he did read Cobra the Dread, where I, where I praised his book and quoted from it at length, particularly these wonderful pages about what it was like to be sent to the isolator. Um, you know, the Soviet system was one that, that liked to grind people together. Crushes was what it was all about. And the thousands who died crushed on the day of Stalin's death is one of the most incredible, iconic facts about um, Bolshevik rule. Um, but the isolator was where you used solitude. To, um, and he was beaten up by an anti-Semitic bitch, I think, um, and fought back and was denounced and went to the isolator. And there's an incredible few pages about the psychological state. And there's this phrase that stuck in my mind where he said, it's like being on a river in your head eventually. You're just floating into, into despair and helpless to stop, you know, to, to reverse it. And he said, but then at a certain point, hope circles back, um, you know, the long way around, and you, you go on. Anyway, I, I wrote, I mentioned, praised him in his book, and then he wrote to me saying that, um, he said, moving me, that... Uh, that it felt, you know, he was dying, and he said, "This has, you know, given my life, you know, a little layer of meaning that it didn't have before." Um, and his other book, "Surviving Freedom," was about to come out, and I read that in TypeScript. So it was a brief exchange, but it was very valuable to me when I was writing the book because I did know a, another victim of the Gulag, Tibor Samueli, who was in Vorkuta for some years but got out quite quickly, and anyway, he died 30 years ago. So Janusz Bardak was my sort of re emotional link with the story, and it sometimes seemed as though my whole legitimacy hinged on that. I think we've got time for one other question over here, um, just by this pillar. There's a microphone coming. Just there, behind the um, Just to change tack slightly, um, there's a new biography of your father coming out which is very soon which is authorised I think um, and you're obviously in it um, <laughs> I just wondered whether you'd read it and, um, before publication and what you make of it um, I've read it um, and I think it's very good and it's written by a friend of mine someone I've known for many years who also edited my father's letters and I, I never doubted that it would be what it is which is you know, extremely scholarly and thorough and I never doubted also that, um, you know, one thing you notice about biographies now of, of, of recently dead writers or still alive writers is that uh, after about eight or nine years working on it, the younger writer begins to hate the guts of the older writer. Uh, so terrible mechanisms get going of, you know, I'm pretty good too and I've spent nine years of my life on this. Um, <laughs> The James Atlas biography of Bellow, yeah. Bellow is a sort of miserable example of this. But um, Zachary Leader never loses sympathy for my father. And uh, 
and that takes some doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> despite everything, which is saying something, he, he stays with him to the end. And um, uh, even, even at his, his most sort of lachrymose, there's full sympathy. Although, I mean, I thought my father, although I now realize that he was much more unhappy than I thought in the last 10 years of his life. But um, um, perhaps we can end on this, that uh, there was a poem that Princess Diana said was her most uh, stirring the poem she turned to when times were rough. Um, and she read it out at some fundraiser in Los Angeles. And although it's only four lines long, she didn't have it by heart. And there was a big, big card that she was reading it from. Um, now, hang on, I have to concentrate to remember because my father rewrote it. Um, and there's a slight difference. Um, life is mainly grief and labor two things stand in stone. Uh, kindness, when it hits your neighbor, courage in your own. And Kingsley said, Kingsley, quite late on in his life, rewrote it. Uh, life is mainly toil and trouble. Uh, two things get you through. To to uh, grief and labor, two things get you through. Chortling when it hits your neighbor, whinging when it's you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> well, well that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is indeed uh, a perfect end. Um, Although I, I read something re recently that Martin said uh, called the real action starts with your obituary and um, I hope that yours is a long way off yet um, and for the moment 57 year old Martin Amos uh, thank you very much. Thank for you coming. very much.